Today's guest is also a contributor to my charity patient safety anthology titled Highway to Heart, Humor, and Honesty in Healthcare to be published late spring and early summer. And I'm so excited to have her. She is Leanna Orsolini. Leanna is a corrections nurse for a prison in the Virginia Department of Corrections where she loves providing population health for the most vulnerable. She received a PhD and a Master of Science degree in nursing from the University of California, San Francisco, and she received a BSN from San Jose State and is a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing, the National League for Nursing's Academy of Nursing Education, and the New York Academy of Medicine. And we do have an expanded bio at our website, speakupandstayalive.com, so you could find out more about Leanna. And I'm so looking forward to learning from her today. Lots to find out, and I'm excited to share her with you. So welcome to the show, Leanna. Thank you so much, Pat. I have to just start out by saying, you know, I've been a nurse for over 30 years in many different settings, whether it's acute care, nonprofit, or for-profit hospital systems home health care, academic medical centers, or the VA system. But I'll be speaking from kind of a novice in incarcerated health because I've been in it for less than six months. And I just have to state that despite all the stigma surrounding this area of nursing, it has been one of the most wonderful experiences in nursing where I've been able to make a significant difference in the lives of the most vulnerable that I've ever had. So I'm hoping by our conversation today, we can attract more nurses into this area that's so badly needed. Oh, excellent. I'm just so excited to talk about this topic. I've not talked about it before, and I especially think it'll be very valuable from you coming at it, as you say, a novice, but not a, certainly a novice within the healthcare world and all the nursing experience that you've had. So I think it's going to be very refreshing to hear your initial take on this and maybe speak with you in a year from now and see if you have a different uh, viewpoint on things. So I'm very, very excited. I, I want to start before we dig into your nursing skills within incarcerated health. Let's talk about population health because I mentioned that right in your bio. Explain what that means. Sometimes that has various meanings and can be confusing. What do we mean when we talk about population health? Well, that's a great question because it's also confusing for healthcare providers. You know, there's a population health world that's Medicare driven or third party payer or insurance care driven, which looks at a certain slice of the population, whether it's patients hospitalized with emphysema or cardiac conditions. But then there's more broader population health, which our public health professionals have practiced in all along whether it's vaccination campaigns or tuberculosis control. So it can be defined differently. And in the incarcerated setting where you're taking care of people that come from poverty, extreme health illiteracy, where honestly, weekly, I have to explain why they need a tetanus shot because they don't know what tetanus is. So you're dealing with people that are at an educational and socioeconomic disadvantage layer on top of that, whether they speak English or not because they're from another country and they're here working, or if they're African-American where they're predisposed to higher rates of hypertension and diabetes. So there's a lot of 
social health disparities that create less health, more sickness, higher risk of death in this population. Mm -hmm. In that population, but then population health in general looks at different segments and we've got people and providers going out into the communities to see what's really out there. I mean, you tell people to eat better. Well, do they know what that means? Do they have the available resources to do that? So it's very broad and encompassing. And I think that's probably why it's a bit confusing. Right. No, exactly. Like many people by now have heard of food deserts where just like you said, there's maybe corner markets that sell alcohol and maybe milk and, you know, very little fruits and vegetables. So what kind of access to nutritious food and, and is it affordable? And in the prison system, because they make staff eat the food, I can tell you it's very high in starch, which is not good for diabetics. You know, potatoes turn to sugar and et cetera. And when I'm given two corn dogs and about half a pound of french fries and then maybe a little bit of cabbage on the side, it's really hard for regular people to keep a balanced weight, much less a diabetic. So the same problems that the population have in certain pockets of this country where housing is not secure and and nutritious food is not a secure thing for them, it can sometimes be alleviated or not alleviated in a prison system. Oh my, you talk about rehabilitating a person. Well, if you don't have good nutrition and you're feeding them French fries and corn dogs, that is a very, very poor way to begin. Yeah, if there's definitely um, areas of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, put it that you know, way. But, but I think the community has to be on board. With this population, you know, it's really, I think, difficult to to talk people into spending more money up front for better nutrition because of how perhaps certain communities feel about incarcerated individuals. But you're going to pay for it in the long run if you're going to incarcerate them for 20 years. So would it be cheaper to give them fruits and vegetables up front or pay for their open heart surgery later on. Exactly. No, exactly. And you know, you talk that the community needs to be on board. I think the community can't be on board if they're not even aware. So just this conversation that we're having today, I think is extremely important to bring about awareness because um, who knows what goes on behind those walls if you've not been there. So thank you for sharing. Well, and it is shocking. When I uh, started looking at the statistics, I had no idea that one in 38 adults living in the U.S. are in some sort of correction system, or 6.6 million of our population are either in prisons, jails, on probation, or parole. I mean, we incarcerate more people than any other country in the world, and uh, many medical associations are advocating, like the American family of physicians are advocating, that we divert those offenders that would be eligible for substance abuse or mental health treatment. It's a multifaceted problem, for, to be sure. Mm-hmm, for sure. I want to take a step back for a moment. What led you to use your many, many years of nursing skills to lead you to work within a corrections facility? How did you get there? Oh, that's a great question. I just started to really miss working with patients. I had been an executive working on population health initiatives for a multi-state health system. And I had done that for six years and that was extremely rewarding and setting up clinicians to do their best work. 
um, for vulnerable populations. In fact, we had a presence in West Baltimore, and still that health system still has a presence there two miles away from where the riots were. But I was so far removed from patient care, I just felt this need to get back to the root of why I went into nursing. And I had a friend whose wife worked in this facility, and she said she loved it, and, you know, they could use another nurse. And I thought, why not? <laughs> I was in between career moves. I wanted to explore that area. I really missed the bedside, and uh, I didn't know what to expect. I had never really done a deep dive in incarcerated health, but, you know, when I started taking care of the offenders and just built this therapeutic rapport with them and was able to make a difference, I mean, talking heavily tattooed men into getting a tetanus shot, even though they were deathly afraid of shots, even though they could handle a tattoo needle for hours, just gave me so much satisfaction. Just being shocked at their lack of knowing basic things about health and finding so much perhaps undiagnosed or underdiagnosed hypertension, because you don't really diagnose hypertension in one setting. You do it over time. And so what's important in corrections is to get to know your patients and to look at their trends. And then the intercollaborative work with a physician is marvelous. If they're in the clinic, I could talk to them about starting a patient on an antihypertensive regimen or get them in to see the physician or email them and the next day they respond to my email. So it's really fun. It's really fun to help people and they're so grateful. They feel so forgotten, so many of them, and, um, and it's really, really sad, but yet you can make such a big difference uh, doing just a little bit of patient education. They're hungry for, for health. They really are. Mm-hmm. You just hit on something I hadn't thought of, but it's so true. I bet that a a good volume of those folks haven't had care or someone to care for them. And so that you could really make a change just, and I don't want to say just, but by providing compassion as as a nurse, uh, I would imagine that there's so much relationship-wise that you can offer that then would translate into, you know, better adherence and their understanding and literacy and all the things that would follow to improve their health. No, I think you've, you've hit it spot on. Once they believe you as a healthcare professional care about them as a person, mm-hmm. they will listen to you mm-hmm. and they will become compliant with their meds. I used to teach mental health nursing in a small community college, maybe seven weeks out of the year. And so I've seen people that are schizophrenic and bipolar, not well controlled. I can't tell. 99% of our offenders who have severe mental health issues and up to 30% of um, anyone who's incarcerated across the nation have severe mental health issues from all the stats. I can't tell which one of them those are most of the time because they have access to medications and they take their medications. They're compliant with it. So I'm seeing a huge opportunity for mental health treatment I just worry, you know, and I don't know the answer to this, do we continue with that same level of mental health treatment when they go back into mm-hmm. the community? Mm-hmm. Probably not, but Probably not. Uh, it's, it's amazing what I've seen we've been able to accomplish in just one health clinic and one prison. Sure. Now, Leanna, are they compliant with their meds because they are a captive audience? Do they have a choice? Well, they always have a choice to refuse. 
unless it's going to hurt the rest of the population. So if they have tuberculosis and they refuse treatment, then we have to isolate them. We don't have a choice. We have to, we are, have to protect the other offenders who live there. If they don't want treatment uh, or if they skip a day and they're on a blood thinner, we call them and we talk to them and we try to teach them about, you know, taking their medication. So there's very few that we worry about, uh, and we get a 99.9% compliant with people on HIV medication or anticoagulants to prevent heart attacks and strokes. They seem to realize what's at risk. And if they don't want to take them, they, honestly, we do a mental health assessment because some of them, many of them are have self-harm uh, ideation and are suicidal. So we have to make sure that they're not trying to commit suicide, slow suicide. Right, right. You questioned whether many times they would do well when they were within the facility, but when they got released, then maybe not so much. And that just made me think that the health impacts of being an incarcerated person are most likely a lifelong because they're going to get out without opportunities. And, you know, they've been exposed to trauma and disease and stress and all the stigma that comes with it. Yeah. How do you sustain that once well, they leave? That's a good question, especially if they're not hireable mm -hmm. because you know, they have a felony on their record. And did they get enough substance abuse treatment? I know at our facility we have mental health counselors, we have substance abuse counselors. It's up to 65% of them across the nation have a substance abuse issue, yet only 11% of them get treatment for it. So, you know, even in our facility where they get treatment for it and we have we have like Celebrate Recovery, a national Christian-based recovery program. We have Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, we have other different options for them to get treatment from the community in addition to our professionals. What happens to them when they leave? I mean, I don't know. They go to all different places, all different communities, and uh, I'm sure that's an area of opportunity to integrate better their release to those other places. Yet, at the same time, there might be some integration, but it's not, as a staff nurse in the clinic, I don't hear about it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a black box for me. So if they're released back into a demographic or a vulnerable community, then perhaps the whole idea of addressing population health ahead of time might eventually lessen the amount of people who, who may become incarcerated or may, may return back after they were released. So maybe there's a real plus here for population health and looking at all of these communities and demographics ahead of time. It's a big job. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, if we had more access to mental health services and substance abuse services, then I think we would save money in the long run because it's very costly to incarcerate somebody. Mm -hmm. The amount of staff that it takes to run a prison or a jail is phenomenal, and it can't be less expensive than putting the money up front into the population mm -hmm. like you talked about. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to imagine that there's health impacts just intergenerationally, the families, the siblings, the, the sons and daughters of incarcerated people. That's got to be linked to some kind of negative health outcomes, I would imagine. There is lots of stress on families, definitely. I mean, many of them are in the same environment. Mm -hmm. So the, the chronic stress of living in an impoverished high crime area uh, does lead to 
more chronic disease and health outcomes decrease, certainly. So I agree with you. Yeah, so prison health is really a part of public health, something we need to pay attention to. Yeah, when you're looking at so much of the population that's affected by this, Mm -hmm. you, you can't afford not to pay attention to it. Yeah, one in 38, you said? That's huge. Mm-hmm. And that's just adults. That's not even oh being juveniles. Wow, wow, wow. And then, you know, I haven't even touched on women's health. I have no experience with women's prisons, but a large percentage of women are pregnant when they get sent mm-hmm. to to their incarcerated facility. Yep. And 50% of them get pregnant within 90 days of release. So I know that in uh, our state law, we have to give our offenders on release 30 days of their medication. Well, for a woman who's of childbearing age, would that include birth control? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, and they're getting pregnant on in 60 and 90 days, and so many of them are across the nation, then, then we have an issue with reproductive health access. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I can't imagine being a woman who got out of prison and having to deal with a pregnancy, yes. trying to get your life in order. Oh my, that's a whole other aspect of it, which I'm, uh, we'll have to touch on that some other time. (laughs) (sighs) Lots to think about here. I am fascinated by this. So heart, humor, and honesty in prison healthcare settings. How do you personally incorporate those acts within your work? I do a lot of mental health nursing, not just look at them physically. I look at them holistically and, and sometimes you know, you have to use a sense of humor, and offenders appreciate that. So there have been some really great heart-to-heart moments and some real moments where my patients and I just laugh really hard at some of the absurdity we run into. It's it's a wonderful place to make a difference. You know, you make special relationships mm-hmm. with the prisoners without fraternization, mm-hmm. and so it's that trust mm-hmm. that gets you far. So whether I'm dealing with a sociopath and I have to set firm limits on their outrageous behavior and um, maybe chuckle about it later or treat gas pain as a heart attack and, and then kind of <laughs> smile and let them know, okay, it's really just the cabbage, <laughs> laughing about it, you know, and just alleviating their anxiety and their fears. There are many light moments and it's very rewarding um, for both uh, the offender and the nurse. I can just feel what a special time you are having and and what a special gift you are offering just as that human connection, somebody who cares. Thank you. I hope that's perceived by the many I take care of. Well, I can perceive it just with this conversation, so I'm sure it transfers very, very well within your setting. Oh, I love this conversation. As we begin to wrap up, though, is there anything that we missed that you wanted to highlight today? Yeah, I think, you know, in looking at patient safety, acts of omission is a huge space, and I'll just touch on it briefly, not just in hospitals and health systems, but in the incarcerated setting. So it's really important to get to know your offenders and your patients. Who The young gang member who comes in the diabetic line in the morning religiously, and then for the last month, they haven't been showing up in the morning. It's critical to follow up on that, and I have a couple people I need to follow up on because it's not their usual. Or you start to notice the patient with HIV who's taking their meds, but over time is starting to drop weight. I mean, that's a huge red flag. And the ones that don't ask for help, the ones that are quiet, 
the ones I keep to themselves, those are the ones you really have to worry about. So an act of omission is basically not doing something you need to do to keep someone safe. And, and that's a huge space. Uh, we're starting to see through organizations like HB Healthcare Safety that 80% of opportunities are in that acts of omission space. So I think it would be important for anyone who works in incarcerated health to start looking at those acts of omissions, to look at system problems, process problems, because that's where the, the most change for safety and reliability is going to take place if we look at those opportunities. That is fascinating because I think it would be easy to say, oh, well, Charlie didn't show up again today and I've got other things to do, not not something I need to deal with and move on. So it's it's that space that really needs your attention. Yeah, or someone who decided to put in a regular non-emergent sick call request and your intuition is telling you mm, they don't know enough about their about healthcare to realize this could potentially be a much more dangerous issue and you have to jump on it and let the corrections officers know, hey, I don't have a pass for this person to come to medical, but I need to see them. It's urgent Mm -hmm. and to have that trust relationship with them that they will act on your recommendation and bring the offender to the health clinic even after hours. So it's that kind of awareness and gut intuition it's critical to follow up on, especially in this population. Yes. So when it comes to patient safety, utilizing nurses, especially in your situation, is, is a huge advantage to the, to the future health of the uh, inmates. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because we notice patterns. We're with more offenders yes. more of the time. You know, a physician can only, or, or an advanced practice clinician, whoever's working in the clinic, can only see so many offenders a day, whereas you have perhaps three LV, LPNs or LVNs and an RN or two looking at many different uh, offenders every day. Mm-hmm. We really get to know their habits and their health history. It's an opportunity to practice holistic nursing, to really be able to listen to your patients. I mean, it's, it's one of the few areas I've been in in my whole nursing career where I can do what I was taught to do in nursing school and not just run around like, crazy and not be able to catch up with my work for too many patients. This is an area I think nurses should consider if they're getting burnt out in other practice areas. Oh, I'm glad you said that because I am speaking with so many nurses lately who are experiencing burnout, either switching careers or going into independent patient advocacy. So this is just another route where you are saying that they can actually, you know, utilize their skills to the best advantage to to what they signed up for and went to school for. Yeah, I feel good at the end of a shift. Mm -hmm. I can't say that about too many practice areas if I wasn't uh, able to do most of what I needed to do for most patients. Oh, this is exciting. Thank you for sharing this. Such a treat to learn about something brand new and then to be able to share it. And I do want to continue this with you, but we're going to begin to wrap up. So as we do, is there any contact information if someone wants to get a hold of you, any websites you want to share? Sure. They can reach me at my email, which is lorsolini number one at gmail.com. That's L-O-R-S as in Sam, O-L-I-N-I, number one at gmail.com. 
They can join my LinkedIn, which is uh, if they search for Leanna Orsolini, they'll see my LinkedIn. So feel free to reach out. Excellent. Leanna Orsolini, this has been such a good conversation. Any final words before we say goodbye? Thank you for this opportunity to share. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for all that you do. You are a blessing to so many. It's been a privilege and an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pat. Listen to Pat Rulo and Speak Up and Stay Alive Radio. Stay safe from little-known healthcare and hospital hazards. To learn more, go to speakupandstayalive.com. That's speakupandstayalive.com.